pray. Father, it is good to be in your house with your people and singing your praises and reminding ourselves of the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel and your grace to us in him. Father, I pray that you would reveal that to us afresh this morning for your glory and for our own great joy. And Father, I, I, I look forward to this Sunday every year as a time for me to reflect on church history and to obey the command of the Lord that we identify faithful men and imitate their faith. Help me now, Father, to be clear. Protect us from error. Give us discernment. Fill us with your spirit, I pray. And all of it so that Jesus would be glorified. For we pray it in his name. Amen. This is the morning I've been looking for. It's one of my favorite times of the year and preaching for me because it forces me to dive into the life of a man in church history. We call this series of annual messages on heroes from church history, imitate their faith, because that's what the scriptures exhort us to do. And there are many places, and I have kept a running catalog of all of the places that I have found in the text that exhort us to follow Paul or imitate men who have been trained by Paul. Or the classic one, and the most important perhaps, is in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, where the author writes, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering their conduct, imitate their faith. I believe we need heroes. Uh, The word of God is sufficient. I don't mean need in that sense of need. But it is so helpful in our sanctification, to have men who have gone before us and wrestled with the things that we wrestled with as fellow sinners and have been faithful. I cherish this time to to, uh, look at faithful men every year. And this morning I want to talk to you about a man you've all heard of whose life I think is worthy of imitation. That is to say, I see in this man's life examples of faithfulness in loving Christ and obeying his word that ought to challenge us to greater love for Christ and obedience to his word. His name is John Newton, and you all know him as the author of the song that Marcia played a minute ago, and we will sing in just a many few minutes from now. Amazing Grace. I want to begin by offering a brief biography of Newton's life and ministry and then talk about specific areas of his life that I think are worthy of imitation. I understand this man was a sinner and he didn't get it all right, but that's the point. I'm a sinner and I don't get it all right. And when I see someone else who's being faithful, we were away with the elders this week, and one of the things I love about these elders' retreats is we get to hear the struggles and the victories of other men and women. We take our wives with us once a year to these retreats. And I come away so convicted on the one hand and so encouraged on the other by their lives and their struggle to obey the Word of God in all the nitty-gritty areas of life. So let's start with 
a biography, and then I'll get into specific areas and just touch on a few because we don't have much time. John Newton was born in London July 24th, 1725. For historical uh, marker there, this is 51 years before the American Revolution. By the providence of God, he found himself parented by a godly mother and an irreligious father. Early on, his mother, who was convinced that she wouldn't live very long because she was suffering from what they called back then consumption, may have been tuberculosis or any number of other diseases, she was determined to teach her son everything that she knew about God to give him a good foundation. So she focused on instructing him with the Westminster Confession and Catechism and the hymns of Isaac Watts. Great place to start. She wanted him to know the truth. So then she died, as expected, and John was merely six years old. After his death, his father remarried and left the boy mainly to himself. He he, that is, the father, traveled the world as a respectable sea captain. Writing about his father later, Newton said, I am persuaded that he loved me, but he seemed not willing that I should ever know it. I was with him in a state of fear and bondage. His sternness broke and overawed me. And then with the death of his mother went the death of his education as well. As an adult, he would recollect that of all his growing up years, he was in school, only two of them, between the ages of eight and ten. He never received any formal training after that. And he never received a theological education, which is remarkable, considering how God used him as a pastor of two different churches in England. One day, in an invitation from his aunt on his mother's side, asking for John to come and pay her family a visit. He didn't want to go, but his father insisted, and so he reluctantly obeyed his father, and when he knocked on the door, it was opened by a beautiful girl. There's all kinds of layers to this story. There's adventure, there's love, there's deceit, there's doctrine and salvation, and and this is kind of the love story part. He would write later, Almost at first sight of this girl, I felt an affection for her that never abated. Young John Newton had fallen in love. Problem was, he was 17, and she was 13, and to make matters worse, she was his cousin. (laughs) But in the providence of God, years later, they married. They both came to Christ, and they ended up sharing pastoral ministry as a married couple, for 40 years until she passed away. Amazing providence of God. And don't you young people ever attempt to establish a relationship like this. <laughs> or I will be knocking at your door. It's the wrong way. Don't presume upon God's providence. For years after this, John traveled the seas with his father. After one of these trips, he went on a walk alone in the countryside and found himself face-to-face with what is called a press gang. This is a group of sailors who would be sent off the deck of the ship to go into town and find any young men they could find and press, which is a euphemism for kidnap, and bring them aboard ship to replace their hired hands or replace men whom they have lost. Uh, They caught Newton 
And because of his previous experience as a seaman under his father, they granted him a higher rank than the other boys who were pressed into service, but he didn't keep that, ve- that rank very long because he proved to be such a blasphemous, mutinous, stiff-necked, rebellious rabble-rouser. I mean, even to the English Navy, he was the worst of the worst. And this deserves some more attention, and we'll circle back around to that when we talk about grace here in a minute. Newton lived aboard the Navy ship for a time, but eventually was put out of the service and began sailing on a trading vessel bound for Sierra Leone, West Africa. In West Africa, he had hoped that he would uh, be able to get set up with some slave traders and become a wealthy man. In the midst, kind of a a twist of of providence and very unhappy providence for him, he ended up up becoming a virtual slave himself for well over a year. His friend who brought him to the place introduced him to his wife. Her name was P.I., spelled P.I. She was an African princess or claimed to be. And while his friend loved him, his wife hated him. One time he got sick, and so his friend had to leave to do business and left him alone on, on the shore in, in, on the edge of the jungle by, in Sierra Leone with his wife. She promptly tied him to a tree and refused to feed him. Um, it was a terrible plight for him. For a year and a half, he himself was a slave to this woman. He found himself planting um, lime trees. And he was in such a bad state that even the slaves, the black slaves, who were also in bondage there, took such pity on him that in the night they would come and sneak him some of their food. One of his biographers notes this time that he spent in captivity was the lowest period of Newton's life. Starving, shackled in fetters, and deeply depressed, he became the object of pity even to his fellow slaves. He lost his fiery anger that had kept him going even in the worst of moments aboard ship. In his own words, quote, my spirits were sunk. I lost all resolution and almost all reflection. He couldn't even think. He was 21 years old. By the mercy of God, a ship eventually arrived by which he was rescued and offered an opportunity to partner with others who were becoming rich in the slave market. Eventually, another ship, captained by a friend of John Newton's father, it's kind of an amazing providence here, somehow he sneaked a letter out while he was in bondage. It found its way back to England. His father received the letter, and he said, I'm in bondage, I'm enslaved, send help. It took months for the letter to get there. took nearly a year or more to come back. By the time it came back, Newton was already free. There was no way they were going to find him. But this friend of Newton's father, who was a captain of a ship, happened to be passing by and keeping a lookout for, for John Newton and uh, gave up. One of his men saw a smoke uh, smoke coming up out of a fire on land and thought, the captain thought, well, let's stop and see what that is. And when he got there, it was, it was Newton. He sat down with him. By now, Newton is really becoming prosperous in the slave trade. And he sits down with him and says, your father wants you to come home. And he says, no, I'm not coming home. I'm doing great here. And uh, so the man really wants to please Newton's father, 
fellow ship captains, and so he made up a lie, and he said, um, surely you want to collect your inheritance at home. There is a great inheritance waiting for you. Within the course of an hour, he went from a committed businessman to quitting his business and getting aboard ship on a lie. And, and so he got on the ship and began sailing back to England. Then as they sailed toward home, a storm hit the ship and battered her so badly that she nearly sank. But it was in that moment that God miraculously broke his heart of stone and transformed Newton's life by the sheer power of sovereign grace. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. Upon arriving home, he discovered that the promised inheritance was a lie, but a wealthy businessman made him a captain of one of his own ships. The vessel was named the Brownlow, and it had been constructed for one purpose, namely to transport human souls for sale in the slave trade. I wish I had time to talk about that, but you can read it for yourself. With his career secured, he returned to the Catlett home, where the girl of his dreams, Mary, whom he called Polly, um, he asked for Mary's hand in marriage. She accepted her father approved. They got married. Newton made three voyages back to West Africa, being gone nearly a year at a time as captain. When sailing, he used the long hours of his trip. Now he's, he's either saved or on his way to being saved. Depending on where you're reading in his autobiography, it's hard to tell. In any case, his heart is aflame, and he wants to know God, and he wants to know salvation. He has no one to disciple him, no church, no Christian friends, no spiritual influence in his life, and he begins reading um, the great works of divinity. And in his spare time, he taught himself Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and just for the cherry on top, French, in case he might need it. And he began thinking, I wonder if God could use me in the ministry of the gospel as a pastor. And he came up, came up with many reasons why that was heard. For the time being, however, his plans were to continue sailing. And then, in another surprising twist of providence, he was having tea with his wife, Mary, one afternoon when suddenly he was struck by a strange seizure that disabled him for about an hour. It was an affliction which, as he later explained, quote, left me no other sign of life than that I was breathing. A doctor came and promptly pronounced him unfit to sail. This was two days before he was to leave on a brand new ship that he was to captain. But now his life on the high seas was suddenly over. Newton's recovery came as quickly as the seizure and the problem never returned. It's an amazing providence if we have time. We'll look at that some more as well. Eventually, he was offered a lucrative position as a surveyor of tides, which also offered him a significant amount of free time to continue his studies and to travel. And as a new believer, as I said, he had no church. He had no Christian friends. He had never even heard an evangelical pastor preach a sermon. But one day, he met a brother in the Anglican church, I think, who, um, who encouraged him to go visit Whitfield and actually gave him a letter of introduction. He met with Whitfield for five minutes. Whitfield said, I got to go, but here's a ticket to come and hear me preach tomorrow. They gave tickets because so many people wanted to crowd into the church. And so uh, we're thinking about doing that here, but not today. <laughs> um, so he went 
and he heard the great Whitfield preach, and it transformed his life. In many ways, he became a personal friend of Whitfield. You, you read the, his journals, and he says, dined with Whitfield tonight. Whitfield dined with my wife and I this evening, and we spent many hours. He spent the night over and over and over again. His nickname became among the inhabitants of that area, Little Whitfield, because everywhere Whitfield went, Newton was with him. Um, Whitfield was the greatest preacher and evangelist of his time. Um, so he and Whitfield became good friends. In the course of his lifetime, Newton would also become very close friends with William Wilberforce, who was much younger than he, and Charles Simeon, and Henry Martin, who many of you probably don't know, but he was a missionary, a great missionary to India, William Carey, John Wesley, and perhaps his dearest of friends was William Cooper, um, who was severely depressed, and Newton served him for decades. Newton became a great supporter of the, of the dissenting, nonconformist evangelical churches whose passion for the gospel and holy living made the Anglican church un, extremely uncomfortable. They constantly derided the dissenters as enthusiasts. They hated their enthusiasm, they, as they called it. They, what that meant was that these brothers and sisters were passionate about the gospel. They were passionate about uh, reading God's word, sharing God's word, preaching God's word, and it drove the Anglican church, the Church of England, crazy. Nevertheless, through a tangled web of events that followed over the next few years, Newton did end up becoming an ordained minister in the Church of England. He pastored two large churches, first in the country village of Alney, which he served for 16 years. Early in his time in Alney, he published his autobiography, this is really interesting, and I, I wish I had time to tell you. But his autobiography was called, listen to this title, An Authentic Narrative of Some Remarkable and Interesting Particulars in the Life of dot, dot, dot. He need to put his name in there. And they did it intentionally. This is a time when these kinds of novels were coming out about mysteries, and, and they really played on, it became an instant bestseller. All over the English-speaking world, it's been translated in many different languages. Um, from time to time, this autobiography uh, has been not only reprinted, but it, it is true to say that since it was released in the 1700s, it has never been out of print. Very few books can say that. The Bible can say that. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Jonathan Edwards' Life and Diary of David Brainerd, never been out of print, and this book and I'm sure there are others, but the authentic narrative of some remarkable and interesting particulars in the life of dot, dot, dot was one of them. When he was 54 years old, he became pastor of an even larger church called St. Mary's Woolnoth in London, where he served out the rest of his life, another 27 years, 16 years in Aldi, 27 years in London. Then on December 21st, 1807, Newton died at the age of 82. So that's a, a really fast flyover of his life. There's much we can benefit from in the narrative of John Newton, and I, I strongly encourage you, read Christian biography, the good ones. There are great men and women who are shining lights for us to learn from, and almost all of the good ones are dead, so read about them. Now, let's 
let's talk about some insights that we can glean. First, grace. We learn from Newton that grace is greater than we may have ever imagined. I could have put this one as last as the grand finale, but I know my propensity to go long, and I was afraid I'd end up skipping it. So we're going to deal with this first. And as I began writing this, I realized it was the foundation of everything else anyway. Newton would develop a very robust theological understanding of God's grace over the years. But it all began with his own unexpected salvation. To appreciate this, you really have to understand what a wicked person Newton was before God's grace broke through. When his mother died, so did every sanctifying influence on his life. His father was an unbeliever, and he married another unbeliever, so his stepmother was no help. You might remember Proverbs 29, 15, that says, a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. No truer words were ever so verifiable in human history as these. If you don't discipline your child and teach them to submit, they will shame you. I know of no greater example than of John Newton. Left alone as a boy, the impulses of his heart ruled in his life. He became a very self-centered, immoral hooligan of a boy. At the age of 18, he was pressed into service in the British Navy, and he became even worse. His friend and biographer, Richard Cecil, says, quote, the companions he met here aboard ship completed the ruin of his principles. And he himself wrote, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor, so far as I remember, the least sensibility of conscience. My love to, per- to Polly, that is Mary, was now the only restraint I had left. This was years before they were married. Newton was a mutinous, rebellious wretch aboard ship. One time when they came to port, he deserted. For that, he was caught, clapped in irons, publicly stripped and whipped and degraded in rank. He was so rebellious and incorrigible aboard ship that the captain ended up flagging down a merchant vessel and trading him for some able-bodied men who would take orders. When he was rescued from slavery in Sierra Leone, The captain, who, as I said, was a friend of Newton's father, decided to give him a privileged position. He became the guest of the captain on the ship. He had his own cabin. All the other men were the the deckhands who had to work. And so he had a privileged environment where you would think, wow, the man would thrive. He was bored to tears, and the only thing he could think to do was get in trouble. He wrote during that time, about that time, I mean, my life, when awake, was a course of most horrid impiety and profaneness. I know not that I have ever met so daring a blasphemer. He would later refer to himself as the African blasphemer. No content with horrid, uh, not content with horrid oaths and imprecations, I daily invented new ones so that I was often seriously reproved by the captain. While aboard ship, the slave ship, he would take terrible liberties with the slave women. 
I mean, this was really a despicable human being. Most of us have probably not known personally such a man as this. If there was ever a hopeless case, John Newton was it. You know of a hopeless case? We were on the retreat this week, and Stephanie told us about um, her sisters, who we've been praying for all these years, to come to know Christ. Hoping, hardly believing, because of their background and situation. And one by one, they have each come to know Christ. There is no hopeless case. And some of you have children, and you think it's hopeless. Some of you have parents. You know, both of my parents were born again when they came to this church. And I was their pastor. What a strange twist that was. <laughs> there is no ho hopeless case. But John Newton was branded a hopeless case. But then we can add, but God. March 21st, 1748, God acted in a remarkable way. One night aboard ship in the North Atlantic, they were coming home to England. He was hoping to have his inheritance. Newton was awakened by a rush of water in his cabin. That's a bad sign. <laughs> the ship had been enveloped by a monster storm. One of its waves struck the boat so hard that a large section of the upper bow was smashed to pieces. The broken planks opened a large hole in the ship and water began to pour in. The captain assigned Newton to the pumps, which he worked at uh, with all of his might. And from 3 a.m. until noon, he took an hour of rest and then took over the helm for the rest of the next day, during which time he declared to his mates, if this does not do, the Lord have mercy on us. And as soon as he uttered those words, Newton himself was astonished that they came out of his mouth. He said, I was instantly struck by my own words. This was the first desire I breathed for mercy in many years. John Newton, the African blasphemer, had spoken the Lord's name with respect and reverence for the first time, and it shocked him. He had no explanation. And so... Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, <laughs> chapter 2, while I get my water. Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is, you were a disciple of Satan. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he, that is God, might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. That is John Newton's story. And if you have any grace at all, It is yours. It is yours. This is what God did in the life of John Newton. As with the thief on the cross facing death, the Lord ignited a marvelous work in what he would ever after call the great day of turning. When Newton later penned the words of his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved, a wretch, a wretch like me. He was not using hyperbole to describe himself. He suddenly had the eyes of the Spirit and could see himself plainly, and he was appalled. He really was a wretched human being, but one day God broke in and gave life to his dead heart, and in a moment his soul became alive to God no less than Lazarus's dead body came alive to the world. And no less, by the way, than Jesus became alive again to the world. But this wasn't the only reason Newton thought grace was amazing. You see, I don't think we fully understand grace if we, if we merely think of it as a benevolent act of God by which he expunges our record of sin. That is grace. That is marvelous. We sing about that grace. That's why the hymn was written. In the Bible, however, grace is not meant to be thought of as an impersonal work of God. Rather, grace is to be viewed, listen, grace is to be viewed as the personal presence of God in Christ, in you, by the Holy Spirit. When Newton speaks of grace, he's speaking of the powerful union between Christ and the believer. You see, man's problem isn't simply that he has committed sins against God, but that we are separated from the divine life of God. We have no life within us. By nature, we do not have the life of God. We are rebellious. We are sinful. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We are separated from the life of God by nature and by our sin. We are like broken branches, Newton will say. Broken branches, withered and fruitless, 
and separated from God. Newton explains, let me, let me quote him. But grace through faith invites us to Christ, the living vine, from whom, as the root of all fullness, a constant supply of sap and influence is derived into each of his branches, enabling them to bring forth fruit unto God and to persevere and abound therein. And then he says this, a life of union with Christ is the life of grace. Grace is not to be viewed as a power, as a force, or as an action that God did. Grace is to be viewed by us as the life of Christ given to us, manifest to us by the word of God, applied to us by the spirit of God, so that we, like branches, become connected to the holy vine of God who is Jesus. Too often we think of grace as some kind of benevolent force or action of God by which God becomes nice or kind to us. In reality, grace is uniting us to his son in an inseparable union. And if there is that, there is fruit. Listen, for John Newton... There wasn't any great lordship debate. Lordship was not an issue. Life was the issue. If you have the life of Christ in you, lordship is not an issue. You have the life of God in you. Of course you want to obey. And of course you'll see your sin for what it really is. And of course you will be humbled by that and worship God for giving you this life that you never had, could never obtain, you couldn't earn it, must be given to you at the sheer impulse of his love and mercy and kindness. He gives us Christ. He gives us a person through whom we have life. He is not speaking of grace as a force, but grace as the living vine who gives life to those who are dead in their sin. And I believe some of you hearing my voice right now have a really low view of your sin. And you kind of have an oops view. My sin isn't that bad. And God's not going to care about these little things. I've never murdered anyone. You know, Newton never murdered anyone. And, and, and he was not a liar. Amazingly, that was the one thing that he would tell people. I've done everything except murder, and, and, I, and I'm not a liar either. I'm, I'm, obviously, he was. We all are in, in the heart. But if you think your sins don't matter to God, the issue isn't a lordship issue. The issue is a life issue. Do you even have the life of Christ in you? That is grace. You don't, you don't decide for Jesus and then get life. It is the life that so moves in your heart that you want Jesus. If you have yet to receive and embrace God's grace savingly, I plead with you today, repent and believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be given this life. 
For Newton, God's saving grace was not a thing or a force or even an action. It was the person of Christ. It was the same person whom the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. How do we get all of those? They are in Christ. Beloved, the grace of God is more robust than you may think. The grace of God is none other than the person of God united with the child of God in Jesus Christ. That's why it's an all-sufficient grace, and it's sufficient to meet every need. As Newton put it, the great God is pleased to manifest himself in Christ as the God of grace. This grace is manifold, pardoning, converting, restoring Persevering grace bestowed upon the miserable and the worthless. This is the robust grace of John Newton. And for the remainder of his life, he never failed to commemorate March 21st, the day of the great turning for him. The great day of turning. The day God broke through When he was 80 years old, he died at 82. When he was 80 years old, he wrote in his journal, March 21st, 1805. Not well able to write. (laughs) He was 80. Not well able to write, but I endeavor to observe the return of this day with humiliation and prayer and praise. He had marked the day as a sacred and precious moment, and he had done so for over half a century. Grace is greater than you imagine. Secondly, oh boy, um, grace, what else do we learn from Newton's life? And we're going to build on grace here. Grace produced profound spiritual health and joy in this man. By health, I'm speaking specifically about mental, spiritual health. Uh, After his salvation, he was really, it was really a remarkable change in this man's life. He was an angry, malevolent blasphemer. He went from being the African, the the angry uh, African blasphemer to, by some accounts, one of the healthiest and happiest pastors in England. Let me just give you a sample of how he's changed a perspective on life manifest itself. He once wrote this. Two heaps. Okay, so, well, his writing is kind of poetic and it's hard to follow sometimes. So imagine before you two heaps, okay? Two heaps, two two piles, human happiness and human misery. Now, if I could but take the smallest bit of the one heap and add to the other, I carry a point. If, as I go home, a child has dropped a halfpenny, and if, by giving it another, I can wipe away its tears, I find I have done something. I should be glad to do greater things, but I will not neglect this. And it gave him joy. A child loses a quarter. And he wipes his tears and gives him another one. And he thinks, this is why God saved me. This is why I'm here and for 10,000 other reasons, but don't miss this moment. 
again. And this is convicting to pastors like me. Busy? He was busy. He was so busy, I don't even want to tell you how busy he was because it's so convicting. But, um, but every pastor that I've met around the world, uh, it's amazing, in Russia, they come to me and they ask me this question, Pastor, how do you handle study time? How do you keep that, how do you find the time? There are so many needs. People knock at your door. Here's what, here's what Newton said. When I hear, okay, so let me give you some background. He's preaching six times a week. He's got a children's ministry that's unbelievable. He's visiting people. He's writing letters. He wrote his autobiography, the dot, dot, dot book that became a bestseller. He's writing hymns. And he says this, when I hear a knock on my study door, I hear a message from God. It may be a lesson of instruction, perhaps a lesson in penitence, but since it is his message, it must be interesting. This is joy. This is delight in life. This is a healthy man. This is what made Newton's ministry stand out in his day. Grace, that is the life of Christ, caused him to see the goodness of God in everything, and it caused him to love people. Another example of this is in the fact that he started a, when he started his ministry in Olney, one of the first things he did was to begin a children's ministry in the community. The people he served were mostly poor lace makers who, whose children received very little education, and he was determined to reach them with the gospel. On the first day that he launched this ministry, and, and imagine, I mean, you've got, no, you've got no Awana program, you've got no VBS, you know, you don't have, you know, projectors and, and all the stuff that we have, and he's got nothing except his church and his Bible um, at this point, his book isn't even out yet, so people don't even know him. And the first week they open the doors, 89 children show up. And those children go home and tell their friends uh, what they learned and, and how it went. And the next time they did it, I, I assume the next week, 44 more arrived. In addition to the 89, soon there were over 200 children showing up on the grounds for him and his wife and William Cooper to manage he loved them. I mean, you have to have some spiritual, uh, serious spiritual health to love and be able to man- manage 200 children. I'm not sure how he did it, frankly. His biographer says he was the most effective communicator to the young. He told them Bible stories. He wrote poems for them. He made them learn hymns by heart because he wanted them to learn doctrine. He even preached to them parables of Jesus. Sometimes he would have one of them stand up and read a text of Scripture, and he would expound upon it for them. He loved to teach them the, uh, the parables. And so in addition to that, he had six sermons a week. And by the way, just as a side note, his su- Sunday sermons typically lasted a full hour. Thank you very much. <laughs> He even explained the length. He said, I cannot wind up my ends to my own satisfaction in a much shorter time, nor am I pleased with myself if I exceed it. So an hour. Um, This extraordinary spiritual health and joy was also manifest in hymn writing. In fact, he started it to, to minister to William Cooper, who was desperately depressed. 
or had seasons of depression that, that were awful. And, and he really, at least for a time, brought William Cooper out of it and, and brought him on kind of as his associate pastor and became his best friend. Um, together they produced the Alney Hymnal. Cooper wrote 68 hymns. Newton, with his indomitable energy, wrote 281 hymns. They weren't all included in the hymnal, I trust, but um, his, his hymns included hymns like these. Uh, you older folks will know these. Uh, Glorious things of thee are spoken. How sweet the name of Jesus sa- sounds. And do you know this one? Faith's Review and Expectation. You ever heard that song? Yes, you have. Later, it was renamed Amazing Grace. <laughs> Newton, the first two words, you know, are the title of the... Nope, Faith's Review and Expectation. It just had to be complicated. He should have said Faith's Review and dot, dot, dot. It would have been a big hit. <laughs> and nobody cared about this song. It made it into the hymn book about halfway through. Nobody sang it. Um, but uh, the American slaves picked up on it. And the last verse that, that we love when we've been there 10,000 years, Newton didn't write that, sorry. Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe included that in her um, Uncle Tom, Tom's cabin as a verse that the slaves added to Amazing Grace. Anyway, that was free. <laughs> um, so the grace of God produced within him a tremendous spiritual health and joy. Third, grace enabled him to see the providence of God. When he, when he was born again, God gave him eyes to see his life afresh. He was stunned by the providence of God. We don't have a lot of time on this, but for this, but let me just mention some things. After his salvation, as I said, he became extraordinarily attuned to this he would look back on meeting Mary and the complications of that relationship, the impossibility of it working out. And yet in the mystery of God's providence, that 13-year-old girl that he instantly fell in love with was the very one that God had for him. And he was a wretched, lost sinner. There's no explanation for this. They ended up having a thriving marriage and thriving ministry. They had no children And there's no mention of that in any of the biographies except to ponder why he never mentioned it. He did mention her doctor's bills, which may give a hint at their concern about that. His rescue from slavery was amazing. His, um, one day when he, uh, when he was in that ship on, on the day that changed everything, March 21st, and the water came in and the ship began to sink He got up, he jumped out of his hammock, and he began running up the stairs to the deck. And the captain said, stop, run and get me a knife. And the other sailor after him ran up the the, the flight of stairs onto the deck, and a wave washed him overboard, and no one ever saw him again. After he came to know the Lord and was a captain, uh, he wasn't a captain yet, he, he was offered to be a captain, and he, he said, I'm too immature for that. You could tell God was working in his life. And so he became first mate. And as first mate, one of his responsibilities was, was to captain uh, the small boat that they would launch off to land to reprovision the, uh, the ship. 
And so they called it vi, uh, revictualization, vittles, right? They're getting vittles for the ship. And his job was to take a team of men, and he was the captain of that little boat, and they would do this again and again and again and again and again. One time he was stepping off the boat, and this particular captain, different captain, grabbed his arm and said, John, not today, and pointed to another man and said, uh, take the boat. And the boat got into the river and capsized. Everyone died. And they asked the captain, why did you stop John Newton from getting aboard that ship? And he said, I don't know. It was the impulse of my heart to tell him to stay, and I have no explanation. His seizure, his epileptic seizure, it disappeared as fast as it came, but it kept him from ever engaging in the slave trade again. It would be 20 years after that before he would begin to see the wretchedness. I wish we had time to talk about the blindness and our own, how a society can become so blind. I will say this, there were no Christian pastors, writers, theologians who were declaring the travesty and the horror and the immorality of slavery in that time. It was just accepted. And that's not that's not rational, rationalization for it. That's it's just the reality of what it was. But God raised up men like William Wilberforce. And amazingly, the tangled web here, William Wilberforce would never have gone into politics if he hadn't first spoken to John Newton. He wanted to be a preacher. And he was given the opportunity to enter into politics as a young man. And uh, Newton, after meeting with Newton, Newton said, don't give up this opportunity. Go and change the world. And that's what God used him to do. 20 years in, abolished the slave trade, another 20 years of work, and abolished um, slavery completely. Amazing, his impact on other people. But that epileptic seizure changed the course of his life. He became the surveyor of tides and then he got freedom to begin studying and thinking about pastoral ministry, and that's how he ended up being a pastor. Beloved, do not use the providence of God to determine the will of God for your future. Bad idea, because you can never interpret the providence of God properly looking forward. And that is so dangerous. So, so many horrible mistakes have happened in the lives of men by trying to discern the will of, will of God based on the providence of God. Base your decisions about the future on the word of God primarily rather than the providence of God. But look back and see the providence of God and let it fill you with wonder and delight and worship and to increase your faith. Let it be God's past grace encouraging and feeding your trust, your faith in God's promises of future grace. John Flavel, 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 I don't know. <laughs> he, he wrote this. Oh, what a history might we compile of our own experiences if, with a melting heart, we trace the footsteps of providence all along the way it has led us to this day. Here it prevented, and there it delivered. Here it directed, and there it corrected. 
In this it grieved, and in that it relieved. Here was the poison, and there was the antidote. This providence raised a dismal cloud, and that dispelled it again. This straightened, and that one enlarged. Here is want, and there is supply. This relationship withered, and that springing up in its place. Words cannot express the high delights and gratifications a gracious heart may find in such employment as this. So rather than going home and turning on the TV, open up a journal and start thinking and writing about God's providence in your life. I've got journals full of them, and I love sometimes just to go back and once in a while to share some of them. So God enabled Newton to see his providence, and he delighted to do so. Um, Here's one that was unexpected to me, and such a delight. God drove him to personal ministry. Grace, that is, grace drove him to personal ministry. Too many young men who enter the ministry bring with them the mistaken notion that pastoral ministry is about preaching and preaching alone. To be sure, it's no less than preaching. And your study needs to be the most significant time of your week, yes, But it is not all preaching. Being a shepherd means not only preaching to large crowds on Sunday morning, but it means meeting with people one-on-one to shepherd them through difficulties and conflicts and fears and discouragement. Newton is a surprising example of such ministry. Let there be no mistake, Newton was a preacher and people loved to hear him preach. Many have criticized his preaching and... um, and, and as I've read various biographers over the last few months, it baffled me a little bit um, why people would criticize his preaching, except that it was simple. He was preaching to poor people, and he made it so clear that the high church looked down on it as nothing grand and nothing stupendous, and no one had the gifts that a man like Whitfield had. But people came out to hear him in droves, he had a big church in Olney. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a large group of people. And in London, there were so many people coming to hear him preach, they had to expand the building to accommodate. And he actually had to hand out tickets for people to come. Uh, I'm, I'm not really thinking about that. But uh, the Newton, Newton never, never let all of that distract him from personal ministry, the ministry of discipleship and biblical counseling. And, and that is not something I'm inserting upon him. Listen, one biographer noted that, quote, whatever he said in the pulpit, Newton reinforced by one-on-one conversations. He emphasized his determination to converse singly, that is, with one person at a time, with individuals for an hour at a time, keeping a careful record of these appointments. I'm thinking, that's biblical counseling. That's what we do. He also offered spiritual counsel to several parishioners each week in his vicarage study, his his church. Beloved, this is what shepherds do. You may call it discipleship, you may call it biblical counseling, you may call it personal ministry. It's all the same. It involves helping people with their perplexing difficulties and practical problems of life and bringing God's word to bear on those issues in love and with grace. And much to my delight and surprise, I discovered 
Newton was a master of this. He did a lot of ministry. He did much of it in his office. But he, um, he was also very effective as a counselor by letter. When I was working on my MABC, Master in Biblical Counseling, they had us do a whole section of our, of our degree was writing letters to counsel people. They never mentioned Newton. I wish they had. But this is a happy providence for everyone who wants to become an effective counselor. You don't have to wonder what Newton would have said about anger or anxiety or disappointment or suffering. You know exactly what he would have said because he said it in his own hand by letters. And he had no idea the effect this was having on people. People, when they received a letter from Newton, it became a family heirloom. They were written so well and they got to the point and they were full of compassion and and instruction. And one of his friends who was in the upper tiers of the Anglican church Someone passed on a few of his letters, and he came to Newton and said, these need to be published. And so he actually wrote to all those people again and said, can I have those letters back? (laughs) And that book um, is in print. In fact, aside from his song, Amazing Grace, his greatest legacy to the church is his letters. 500 of them were published before his death, another 500 after his death. A thousand letters. This past week I read about five of them. Let me offer you a sample or two. What do you do if somebody comes to you and they're really, they're really down? They're not depressed, just really disappointed. Something they expected to happen didn't happen. Maybe they worked on it for a long time and they're just really discouraged. And they come and they say, can you help me? Here's what John Newton said. Dear madam, I can hardly recollect a single plan of mine of which I have not since seen reason to be satisfied that had it taken place in season and in circumstance, just as I proposed, it would, humanly speaking, have proved my ruin. Or at least it would have deprived me of the greater good the Lord had designed for me. You see, we judge things by their present appearance, but the Lord sees them in their outcome. If we could... If we could see everything as he does, we would have the mind of God. But as it is, we cannot. It is therefore an unspeakable mercy that he will manage for us whether we are pleased with his management or not. Indeed, this is great. Okay, you've got to get in your, eye, in, your, in your mind a blind man who doesn't like being <laughs> instructed, okay? Indeed, we should admire his patience toward us. If we were blind and reduced to needing a person leading us around and should yet dispute with him and direct him at every step, we should probably soon weary him and provoke him to leave us to find our own way by ourselves if we could. But our gracious Lord is so long-suffering and full of compassion. He bears with our complaining and yet He will take methods both to shame and to humble us and to bring us to the confession that he is wiser than we. The great and unexpected benefit he intends for us by all the disciplines we meet with is to tread down our wills and to bring them into subjection to his. So far as we attain this, we are out of reach of disappointment. For... When the will of God can please us, we shall be pleased every day, morning 
and night. <laughs> Nobody writes like that anymore. Isn't that good? Trust him. Regarding fears and anxieties, he wrote, Dear Sir, I compare troubles which have to undergo in the course of a year as a great bundle of sticks. Okay, so imagine. This is a metaphor. He's talking about a bundle of sticks, and presumably you're going to, God's going to give them to you to carry. Okay? That represents your troubles. Okay. I compare the troubles which we have to undergo in the course of a year, a great bundle of sticks, of sticks, far too large for us to lift. But God does not require us to carry the whole at once. He mercifully unties the bundle and gives us first one stick, which we are to carry today, and then another, which we are to carry tomorrow, and so on. This we might easily manage if we would only take the burden appointed for each day. But we choose to increase our troubles by carrying yesterday's sticks over again today and adding to the burden of the load before we are required to bear it. <laughs> that is helpful to me. What's he doing? He's saying, you know Jesus is teaching on this. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Trust me. Trust me. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. He was just taking God's word and bringing it down to an understandable, in an understandable manner that people could take home. And some of you are going to take this home, and you're going from this point on say, I only have to carry one stick today. So grace drove Newton to personal ministry. And finally, grace produced in him a deep humility. James teaches us, James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Like John the Baptist who said, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. So Newton endeavored to lift up Christ and lower himself. I think this was the secret of his happiness and his joy. He wasn't trying to exalt himself, so he wasn't frustrated when he didn't get exalted. He wasn't trying to make people love him, so he didn't... He didn't get crushed when people said bad things about him. He was free. It was his opinion that the greatest virtue in a minister's life was his humility. He wrote, Lord, give me a humbling sense of my sins. Give me a humbling sense. Give me a, a humbling view of your glory. Give me a humbling view of thy love, for surely nothing humbles me like these things. My sin, your glory, and your love. All my pride springs from ignorance. May I be nothing in my own eyes. May I be willing um, and desirous to be the servant of all. The text has seemed to govern his life, and he mentions this, and that's why I do, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. The Lord's bond servant. By the way, he wrote that when he realized he was about to be uh, made a pastor and given a church the African blasphemer. And he clung to this verse, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. He must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. 
And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. He loved that text. And he saw it worked out in his life. In the parish next to him, there was a liberal pastor. And he, and he hated Newton. The Anglican church, he derided Newton. And Newton just kept loving him. And, and one time, there was a couple in the other pastor's, I think his name was Scott, became a famous pastor in Alna. He actually replaced, I'm getting ahead of the story. So he, uh, there was this couple in the other pastor's parish, and the husband and wife were both sick. And this pastor lived very close to him, but was not shepherding them, was not ministering to them. And the husband died. And Newton said, that's it, I'm crossing the line. And went over into that man's parish and ministered to that wife, him and his wife, ministered to this this woman, restored her health. And this pastor was angry. And his story later on was he became so convicted by the grace and the love, not only displayed to him, but to this couple. And then one day, this pastor, this vitriolic malcontent, had a problem of his own, and he had no one to turn to. So guess whose house he knocked at? And he knocked on the door, and John Newton brought him in and ministered such grace and kindness and love to him that that pastor was born again in his house. (laughs) He, let's see, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive to him, by him, to do his will. When John Newton left Olney for London, this new believing pastor became the new pastor of Alney, and William Wilberforce traveled long distances to come and hear him. He became a faithful man of God because of the ministry of Newton. At the end of the day, the thing that perplexed John Newton more than anything else was not that some people could not grasp Reformed teaching or that they were repeatedly stumbling in their pattern of sin, He's not disturbed by that. He was not shocked by that. He was not astounded by that. What really astounded him was the thought that after all those years as living, living as the African blasphemer, God would be gracious to him, would forgive his sin, and would promise him an everlasting audience with Jesus in heaven. In his own words, this is how he says it. When I get to heaven, I, I shall see three wondrous things. Okay? You ready for the three things? When I get to heaven, I shall see three wondrous things. The first, the first will be to see many there whom I did not expect to see. <laughs> the second wonder will be to miss many who I did expect to see. And then he says, the third and greatest of all will be to find myself there. That's amazing. This was his modus operandi. This is what made his life tick. In one of his final hymns, hymns, he penned these words. This is the last. I've mentioned this a few weeks ago. This was the last verse. He said this. My grace would soon exhausted be 
but his is boundless as the sea. Then let me boast with holy Paul that I am nothing. Christ is all. At age 82, before he died, John Newton famously said these words, My memory is gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. So, beloved, here's a man whose life and character help us to see how to live out the biblical truth that we know and love and long to be conformed by until we are fully formed in Christ. To the extent that we see Christ in John Newton, we are helped along our path of sanctification by his life. And so, as the author of Hebrews would say it, consider the result of his conduct and imitate his faith. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by these things. We love the providence that we see in other people's lives and that we are learning to see in our own. But most of all, what John Newton reveals to us is the glory of Christ. May we fix our eyes on him, the author and pioneer, perfecter of our faith, and follow him Lord, you've put us in the church so that we would help each other. And may we not only seek to help others, but may we look diligently for others who can help us and to reveal by their example areas in our lives that are weak or sinful and need to change and be repented of. And by your grace, may we become like Christ by following such example. I pray for our young men here, Lord, that this would be their humble ambition to learn to be an example to believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity by reading and studying your word and by humbly remembering our history and the men you used to accomplish mighty works in your church while we wait for your appearing. Lord, we love you, and our love is infinitesimally small compared to the mighty love you have for us, and so we praise you, and we give you thanks in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.